Good morning, welcome, and so glad that you're here. If you turn in your copy of God's Word, whether you're down in the fellowship hall or at home or here in the room, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. Uh, we are uh, con- beginning a series called This is the Way, a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We began um, kind of walking through Matthew back in December. Uh, we... Uh, Four years ago, began the Sermon of the Mount and uh, started it and then kind of took a pause, obviously, for four years. And uh, so we are now kind of at a place uh, that we're deep into the Sermon on the Mount. And it is good that we sang that song, Let Your Kingdom Come, because this is the topic of of what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and, and teaching that. And it's not just a place or or a it is a reign and a rule of Christ and God through his people. And therefore, this sermon and what Jesus is challenging is that we as his people uh, reign and rule like him. And that there is an expectation of how we should live. And so we're going to begin that this is the way. This is how we are to live. And so uh, today we're going to look at the challenge or the expectation For us to protect our eyes. So let's begin by reading verse 27 to verse 30. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that if you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you say and you write, and Jesus says, you have heard. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this spirit, That as we come to your word, that we read it and understand now that we have heard from you. That we have heard in your word. We have heard through the spirit. And that today as we wrestle, that we are challenged, that we are cut to the heart with your word. That we are reminded that we have now heard. And now we must obey. Lord, be with us as we are challenged in this word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Sermon on the Mount, we know as Jesus' largest collection or recording of Jesus' teaching. I believe that it is clear, unlike some uh, theories, that it is Jesus' sermon, a sermon that they went to a place at a time and that there was a sermon in which Jesus taught, a, a teaching that was recorded. Now, we, we do know that it was not everything, but we do know that it was uh, what was important and inspired to be recorded. But in this, we have the largest teaching that we receive from Jesus from chapters 5 through chapter 7. Of Matthew. There is a reiteration of this in Luke. It is shorter, but this is the largest single session of Jesus' teaching. I'm pretty sure this sermon 
was not three points in a poem, as some uh, have ever had. And I'm certainly sure that the disciples didn't meet, beat the Methodists to the KFC buffet that day. Uh, it was a large sermon. It was a large teaching. But the topic is the kingdom of heaven, that, that to follow Jesus demands a different way of life, that it is vital for us as believers and the people of God to understand that there's something expected for us once we trust Christ. Right from the outset that Jesus lays it all on the line. He says the new age has dawned, a kingdom has come. The sermon shows that a life after repentance and commitment to the king has to be different. The injunction in chapter 6, verse 8, do not be like the rest of them, encapsulates the idea of the sermon. That there is a sharp contrast now being raised or being shown from the different radical values of those who are in Christ to those who are not in Christ. That there is values and orientation of life that is totally different outside the kingdom than there is inside the kingdom. And it echoes and answers this question that, that comes from Psalm 24, 3 through 4, that says, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. There's an understanding, even from the Old Testament, that if we are to be in the presence of God and in heaven, that there is a demand for holiness. And Jesus even reiterates in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 of this sermon, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that those who have read the law, memorized the law, studied the law, kept the law, and then actually even made man-made laws to make sure that you don't even get close to breaking the law. He says that even if you don't surpass them, you will not see or inherit the kingdom of heaven. What is the purpose of this? Well, it's twofold, I believe. One, it reveals that we need a savior. It helps us to see that on our own, there is no way that we can obtain a righteousness that gives us the authority and the privilege of heaven. But also, it helps us to see that there is a great demand that Jesus has on the life of a believer. Here, where we begin to read, is actually the second of six antitheses in verses 21 through 48. The first one that came right before this, it says that, it, it quotes the, one of the commands that you shall not murder, and Jesus kind of gives a twist on it to say, if you've even had anger in your heart, you've already murdered. Now here in the second antithesis, Jesus is saying, you have committed adultery even if you've thought or seen or lusted after someone. It is in this passage that Jesus reminds us that the sin of the eyes and the lust of the heart is deadly. And in America, unfortunately, we need a reminder of this. 
In America today, it is estimated that the pornography industry is a $12 billion industry. That during the pandemic, two of the top 10 websites visited in the United States, the top 10, two of the top 10 sites were pornography sites. And currently, three pornography sites are in the top 20 in America. We know that there are people who are struggling. We know people who are using privacy filters not to get caught. And unfortunately, many times when you hear a sermon like this or teaching, it is strictly aimed at men. But I hate to tell you, ladies, this is a struggle for every gender, for both genders, that the romance novel industry is a billion-dollar industry, and no one would have known who Christian Grey was except for a couple years ago that was famous among women. So therefore, it is my shame to read these very words. Verse 28, but I tell you, everyone who lusts at a woman who everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It should be a shame for all of us as we read these. Because there's not a person in the sound of my voice who has not failed. So as we read this verse and we read these verses and we understand this warning, Jesus is telling us, protect your eyes so that you can protect your heart, so that you can protect your life. And it's in this passage, there are three truths about the sin of the eyes. So if you're following along at home or here and you're writing or typing or whatever to follow along, Number one, the sin of the eyes is the sin of the heart. The sin of the eyes is the sin of the heart. Verse 27 and 28 says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now Jesus is addressing many of the Ten Commandments uh, right here in this section. And he addresses the Seventh Commandment to not commit adultery. Uh, Exodus 20, 14 says, do not commit adultery. Yet Jesus helps us, yet Jesus helps us to understand that it's full meaning, it's full context. You see, at most of the times we see a law of prohibition and we, we kind of see it at its, the letter of the law. But what we must understand always is that that letter of the law is addressing an issue of the heart. And that Jesus is saying that we're saying not commit adultery doesn't mean that just, oh, the good thing you didn't go sleep with your neighbor or know that you didn't fall in temptation with your secretary or you didn't do something with, uh, online. No, what he's saying here is there is something deeper at stake here. That if you understand adultery, it is not just what you look and what you do. It is a matter of the heart. Jesus states here it is just not the act of adultery, but it's even the thought of adultery that is damning. In effect, 
by labeling lust adultery. He has deepened the seventh commandment into the tenth commandment and the prohibition to covet. And here in this verse, looks is a present participle. And maybe if you don't understand or know that, what that means, it could be interpreted or translated one who keeps on looking at a woman. You see, Jesus is clear is that one, it is not a look, but it is one who keeps on looking, one who idolizes something or someone sexually for ourselves. David Dockery and David Garland help us understand by and giving the emphasis here to understand that lust is completely self-centered, interested only in sexual gratification. It treats the other persons as things to be exploited. exploited. It adulterates them. So therefore, it is not just the act of the eyes, but the eyes begin to move our heart into a realm of fantasy, a place uh, that, that desires and covets and wants. The acts of shame are prece- preceded by fantasies of shame. And the inflaming of the imagination comes from the indiscipline of the eyes. To protect us from fantasies, then we must do something to protect our eyes so that our heart does not wander. If it's wanting something we can't have or wanting something so much that drives us to it, it has become an idol of desire that causes us to stumble into sin. And what happens sexually is this happens through our eyes. Therefore, the sin of the look is what happens in the eyes. You know, a friend before shared a story to help kind of understand the difference of what happens and how we might avoid. He was a preteen. He was riding with his youth pastor with a couple of other boys in, in the church van. And they came to a, the end of a street where it was a, a kind of a three-way stop. That side was a, just a, a house and two stops here and another stop, and they came perpendicular to that road and were waiting for the light. And as they were sitting there, a a young female came out in a bikini with her chair to come lay out in the sun. And so him being a preteen, and if you have been around any preteen boys or teenage boys, you know they have what is uh, loose tongue-itis, Uh, They have this thing where everybody's thinking it, but they don't say it, but the preteen boy has to say it. And so uh, he's in the back of the van and he says, oh, youth pastor looked at the girl, youth pastor looked at the girl. And to something he said that, that struck him that he remembered for the rest of his life as youth pastor, not to be taken aback by this teenage boy, said, yes, I did see her but I didn't look back. I couldn't control where I was sitting. I couldn't control that she walked out. But once I saw her, I didn't keep on looking because I wanted to control and protect my heart. Brothers and sisters, we must protect our eyes to protect our heart. So number two, the sin of the eyes must be killed. The sin of the eyes must be killed. Verse 29 says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your parts of your body than to throw your whole body, for your whole body to be thrown 
into hell. Jesus continues to say that the eyes are so dangerous that it can lead us into death. And if you wish to ascend to the holy place, if you wish to inherit the kingdom of God, you need to understand that you must live a holy and pure life. And that's in this characteristic. Therefore, we must take sin seriously. Or as the Puritan John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is understanding of what all the scripture teaches us to take sin seriously, not because it's just an offense to God, but it is also an offense to God that leads us to hell. Colossians 3, 5 through 6 reminds us, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. So Jesus here teaches then that if it is your eyes that is causing you to sin, that you must kill it. Now he uses the phrase, if it is your left eye, that you must gouge it out. It is a common teaching that Jesus says several times through the Gospels. Here he uses the phrase, if it is your eye that calls you to sin or your, your hands that cause you to sin, that you must cut it out. Later on, it's the eyes, the hands, and the feet. Uh, whatever the troublesome thing is is Jesus is talking about, but this is a dramatic figure of speech. Jesus is not telling us to maim ourselves. If, if so, we would have learned a lot about the disciples and apostles who had, you know, left eye Luke and, you know, all these other people that have been struggling with sin because the reality is we know we are being struggling with this. But what, what we need to know is if we are being controlled by these things, we must do something desperate and powerful and instantaneous to mortify and kill sin. What he's advocating is not for a little physical maiming, but instead a ruthless moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification. In other words, that's a term we use to put sin to death. So what do we do as disciples? We take up our cross and follow Jesus. And therefore, the cause for us to follow Christ, it is not our our entrance into heaven that we get perfection instead we rely on the perfection of Jesus but the response of our salvation in Jesus demands that we say go you Jesus so we will go you have called us to purity and love and faithfulness and true and holiness therefore we will follow this same path Jesus so what does Jesus mean then we should put these sins and practices and put them to death. D.A. Carson said about this, he said, what then does Jesus mean? Just this, we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little bit around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, and dig it out. What is ever necessary for us with sexual temptations, desires that would lead to sin, we must crush and kill. You know, in, in infantry and in military tactics, it is most commonplace to put sentries, to put lookouts, 
to put things to keep us out of sin's way. They're, they're indispensable. But unfortunately, we in the Christian faith have allowed the enemy to overwhelm us because we are not guarding our hearts. We are not guarding ourselves. In saying this, what we want to say is what Jesus says, that we must understand that sin leads to death and we must deal with it. Now, I understand saying this. I'm very far from wanting to put down any man-made law or rule that we recognize that men and women each are, are made differently and wired differently. What, where one man might stumble and fall or one, one woman might stumble and fall might be totally different. One man or one woman might see sexual pictures or images on paper and fill, film and never be scathed and, and never be tempted. But what I do have the liberty to say is exactly what Jesus says. If your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your foot causes you to sin, don't go. If your hand causes you to sin, don't do it. And we must take the necessary steps, whatever it is, to remain holy, to protect your family, to protect your reputation, to protect your children, and to protect your heart. And specifically, to protect the name of Christ. Because if we are claiming Christ and we are being Christians and we are being disciples and we are following him, we cannot excuse our own behavior and say what is opposed to Jesus and say, well, we're going to do something different. Because it either means that Jesus isn't worth it, Jesus really didn't say it, or his death isn't worth our salvation. So we need to mortify and kill sin. If that means deleting certain apps on your device, you do it. If it means putting your computer in a common room, you do it. If it means avoiding all the cool shows that everybody's streaming and talking about and you're fearful for being left out, but you know that it's got things on there that tempts you to sin, you just don't watch it. I know a man who took sin so seriously and struggled so much that he just went to his family and said, look, I know that this is going to be the most inconvenient thing, but we are not going to have internet in our home because I do not want to be, I don't want to drag our family, our life, and I don't want to fall far from Jesus. Taking up your cross and following Jesus means that you are committing to live differently like Christ, not of the world, and that means killing sin. Because, number three, the sin of the eyes can lead to the sin of the hands. The sin of the eyes can lead to the sin of the hands. Verse 30, Jesus reiterates, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and Throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Jesus continues to say here that your hand leads you to sin, then you must take your hand off. Again, he's not reiterating to maim, but he's saying that, that again, we must understand that what we, what we see, what we think, then leads what we do. The overall teaching is we must protect our eyes to protect our hearts because if we don't, it will lead to very even further damning actions. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, 
you've been around and you've heard and read, you've probably heard of the story of David and Bathsheba. The king of Israel, the greatest of all, even a man after God's own heart, he struggled in temptation and fell deeply. Let me just read to you the account of him and Bathsheba. And I want you to listen and, and think on your own how his eyes were not stopped, which led to a desire, which led to a physical sin. And let me just be clear. What I'm saying is all of them are sin and equally, Jesus is saying all of these are bad. The, the, the eventual outcome is not the most sinful thing. The sinful thing is to keep on look, looking. The sinful, even more sinful thing is to keep on lusting. The more sinful thing is then to even continue into a physical adultery. But listen to those things. In 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 4, it says, In the spring when kings march out to war... David sent Joab with his officers in all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath when David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Elam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from uncleanliness. Afterward, she returned home. And the rest of the story is, is that she became pregnant. And from there, he had to cover it up. And then he put Uriah on the front line, and Uriah was killed. Do you see how the observation the keep on looking, that became a desire, the desire became an action. Jesus is ultimately saying that all sexual activity outside the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife is sinful. Everything outside of it. And yet the most primitive and the most basic of our wandering eyes must be stopped. All of it is sin. All of it is contrary to God's word. Jesus' teaching helps us to see this most important fact, both in verse 29 and verse 30, that if we don't deal with this, we are, we are subject to sin that leads to hell. The ultimate reason why sin must be taken seriously is that we understand that the payment and death of our sin ends in hell. And we must under, understand that this separation is separation from God and punishment forever. Either we are a believer who repents and of our sins, that we understand and fight and mortifies and kills sin as the scriptures tell us, or we are unbelievers who continue to be in sin that leads to death. Jesus will say to many who say, Lord, Lord, he will say, away from me, I never knew you. Because many times we are playing games with the fact that we trust Jesus, and yet we've never counted the cost to truly believe what it means to follow him. But I am so thankful, I'm so thankful that through Jesus Christ, 
and through God that we are saved and redeemed by grace. That grace has been extended to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when I read these verses and I think of how the times that I have failed and, and the times that I've struggled and I've thought through this, I must run to Jesus. And that is the point of this passage, the point of this sermon, is that we understand that as Jesus began, blessed is the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. When we understand that we are failing, blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over our sin and we will be comforted. Blessed are those who are humble. Those of us who understand we need to be humble because we, we know we can't do this on our own. We will inherit the earth. Blessed are the, those who are pure in heart for they will see God. We know that we can't be pure outside of Christ working in us. So you may be sitting here today and you might be sitting in that pew or at home on that couch or downstairs in that chair squirming and replaying events of your past and, and, and feeling horrible and, and, and Satan is bringing up all these things right now to make you doubt. But brother, sister, hear me in this. You are never too far gone that Jesus' love can't redeem. You are never have a history in which Jesus' blood cannot make clean. You can trust in Jesus today. You can be changed. You can be trust, trust in the fact that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and life is enough for you to be saved. Not that you need to gain salvation. Not that you need to earn it or that you need to get to a certain point. But that your only hope is a Savior, Jesus. And that when you trust in him, his grace, his word, and his spirit will help you to change he calls you as you are right now to trust in him. But he also calls you to not stay as you are. He will change you. And I'm, incur I'm telling you now, it's not going to be instant. It's not going to be easy. It might be hard. But it will be glorious and Jesus is worth it. Jesus loves you. And heaven is real and the kingdom of heaven is real. And it is all worth it. Because it is not our sexual desires, our sexual identity. Any of those things is something for us to value. Oh, brothers and sisters, the only thing that is of eternal value is our relationship with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this of this passage. He said, I think, God, that I have a gospel which tells me that another who is spotless and pure and utterly holy has taken my sin and guilt upon himself. I'm washed in his precious blood and he has given me his own nature. When I realized that I needed a new heart, I found, thank God, that he has come to give it to me and he has given it. So brothers and sisters, this morning, maybe you need to take serious this call of pure eyes and pure heart. You need to confess right away 
you need to bring this sin to light, whether it's to your spouse or to a parent or to someone, because sin thrives in the darkness. You must drag it out in the light so that it can be killed. You need to take drastic strategies to kill it. Safeguards, sentries, actions to kill this sin. Maybe it's even including talking to a counselor to help you walk through this. And you need to ultimately trust in the grace and beauty of Jesus who forgives you. This morning as we read these heavy verses, maybe this little poem can be our prayer. One thing I of the Lord desire, for all my way has darksome been. Be it my earthquake, wind, or fire, Lord, make me clean. Lord, make me clean. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are challenged and reminded of your word of what you've called us to be as we follow you. Help us to see the seriousness of our sin. Help us to see the seriousness and the call to put sin to death. But in the same way, God, help us to look to the Savior who teaches us and the Savior who gave his life for us, that his perfectness and his righteousness and his purity and his holiness are now ours. So I encourage us to turn to Jesus for forgiveness, for strength, for life change. And God, we are thankful for the work and the gift of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.